I want to start this morning with the idea of this, that, that God is a bridge builder. Okay, I want you to think about that, that God is a bridge builder. Throughout the Bible, we see God building bridges. We see him building relationship bridges with humans so that he can bless humans with himself. With his love and with everything that he is, God builds bridges with humans. And he doesn't build bridges with with people because he needs friendship with us, but because he knows that we need friendship with him. And so if we are following God's example, if we are his disciples, and if we are a church on mission with Jesus, then we want to be uh, building bridges as well with people. We want to help people get from wherever they are in their lives um, over the bridge of Jesus through faith so that they will be friends with God and enter his kingdom of light. And Cedar Home exists to bring glory to God by making disciples of Jesus. And one of the ways we make disciples is through what we call gospel-centered multiplication. How do we multiply disciples of Jesus who bring glory to God? Well, we have to start by having some sort of relationship with people who might become disciples. And in order to do that, we have to build relationship bridges with people so that we We can come to them where they're at in their neighborhoods and in their schools and workplaces and so that they can come to us where we are at in this church building and in our community groups and at special church events that we host. When we look at the storyline of history, God is graciously doing this over and over again with humans. God is continually building bridges with humans by coming to us. And he does this in special ways. Think about this, God came to Adam and Eve, God came to Noah, God came to Abraham, God came to Moses, and so many of the Old Testament saints that we know. God came to them and he showed them the way to himself. When the Hebrews were in the wilderness for 40 years, God came to them and comforted them with his presence by leading them with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. When the Hebrews followed God's instructions to build the tabernacle, where they could worship him, he showed them he was there by resting on the tabernacle with the cloud of his presence. When they built the temple as a permanent place to come to worship God together, God was with them in a very special way behind that great curtain, the room that we call the Holy of Holies. And after that, God came to humanity by adding flesh to himself in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, who is God in human flesh. John 1.14 says... And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And in coming to earth, Jesus demonstrated that God loves humanity so much that He actually took our sin upon Himself on the cross. He suffered the punishment for our sins, that punishment that we deserve. And by suffering for our sin and by putting it to death, And then rising up in victory from death three days later, Jesus made a way, he made a bridge for us to be friends with God forever if we put our faith in Jesus. He is the bridge to God. He is God. And then Jesus um, ascended physically into heaven where he now sits in heavenly glory at the right hand of God the Father. And because he's no longer here physically, he invites us to draw near to him through faith as we 
come to his throne of mercy and pray for more grace and help in our time of need. And he also promised that he would never, uh, he would never leave us, that he would send the Holy Spirit of God to live inside of us, inside of all of his followers, to minister to us forever. And that momentous event of the Holy Spirit coming to Jesus' church in power is what we get to hear about today in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. So if you got your Bible, open up to that, please. Acts 2, 1 to 13. This passage is great news uh, for those of us who want to know God and for those of us who want to live lives in the awareness of, of God's power and in the awareness of God's presence with us wherever we go. We'll put it on the screen, too, if you didn't bring your Bible today. As you're turning there, let me pray for us. Dear Father God and Son, Jesus, and Holy Spirit, as we open your word now, we, we pray that you would help us. Please help us to love you, to worship you now. Please work powerfully, supernaturally among us. Fill us with your peace and with your joy and with a spirit of unity. We want more of your power, Holy Spirit. We want more of your power in our church and in our own lives. Please forgive us for doing things in our lives and as a church that squelch the power of your spirit. Please help us to turn from those things, to see what those things are and to turn away from them, to stop doing them and to turn to you and to walk in step with you, Holy Spirit. Please uh, give us a desire for you, God. Give us a desire for your power that is greater than our desire for sin. And we ask that you would help us now and protect us from evil. Bless the kids next door and the kids in the nursery and all the ones serving there. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to take today's passage one verse at a time. Surprise, surprise. So let me start by reading... Acts 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Let's start with Pentecost. What is Pentecost? Pentecost was one of the three major feasts on Israel's annual calendar. And it was also known as the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of the Wheat Harvest. The Wheat Harvest. And the Jewish temple was in Jerusalem, so at that time in history, the devoted Jews who lived all across the ancient world would gather together in Jerusalem to offer God their offerings and to worship God. And specifically, they offered God the first fruits of the wheat harvest. They didn't bring to God whatever was left at the end of the wheat harvest. They took the first fruits, and they gave them to God as an offering they came from the first and the best of what he had provided for them. Just a point of application now. Now, in 2017, because Jesus has already come, he's already fulfilled the law for us, we no longer need to bring wheat offerings to God. But in 2 Corinthians, God does tell Christians to excel in giving back to the Lord financially in proportion to what he has given us. And God deserves an offering of our first fruits, the, the first and best of what he has given to us, whatever we decide that is, in proportion to what he's given to us. And in order to do that, in order to give God the first fruits that, 
of what he's given to us, we have to plan ahead. Uh, most of us can't give our first fruits financially when the offering plate is coming down the road. To make it a habit to do this, we've got to look at our budgets and we've got to see what God has given us and we've got to examine how he's providing for us and then we pray and we pray to God and say, God, help me decide on an amount of money to give to you and to your church that is in keeping with how you've provided for me. And when we set apart money for God at the beginning of the month, it is totally an act of faith in God that he is going to give us what we need to make it through the rest of the month. And you see this principle all throughout the Old Testament that God says, I don't want you to eat all the manna now. I don't want you to store it up. I want you to trust that I'm gonna be there tomorrow and I'm gonna fulfill my promise and I'm gonna, I'm gonna help you. I'm gonna give you what you need. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not re reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. We've got to remember the good news of Jesus tells us that God does not love us or save us from our sin because we give offerings to him. Rather, we give offerings to God as an act of gratitude to him for what he's done for us in Jesus Christ and for what he is how he's providing for us. And, and we also give because we want to see ministry done for the glory of God's name in our church and in our community and around the world. And this is one of the ways we join God in mission. Now at the same time uh, that thousands of Jews were congregating in Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of the Wheat Harvest, God was planning to reap another great harvest among this crowd. He was planning a great harvest of souls who would trust in Jesus for eternal life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this would happen through the gospel preaching of the apostles and of all of Jesus' disciples in Jerusalem. Verse 1 says that on the day of Pentecost, the disciples were all together in one place. And this probably refers more to, uh, uh, to more than just those 12 apostles and the women and Mary and uh, the physical brothers of Jesus. It's very likely that many of the 120 Christians in Jerusalem were gathered together in one big house. And verse 2 says, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. So while this large group of Christians was sitting down together in this house in Jerusalem, they suddenly heard the sound of a mighty rushing wind coming from heaven. Now in Washington, we certainly know a thing or two about strong winds. Um, whether you're standing on the ocean shore as the wind crashes the waves into the rocks, or whether you're asleep at night during a windstorm and praying that no trees fall onto your house, I grew up in Casper, Wyoming, where all year it was not uncommon to have sustained winds of 50 to 70 miles an hour per day for days at a time. And, and you know what? The winds always came from the east or the west or the north or the south or any combination. But I never heard, I've never heard any howling wind come from heaven down to earth. But this is exactly what all the disciples in that house heard. A sound like a mighty wind coming downward from heaven. And the sound was so encompassing that it filled the entire house where Jesus' followers were sitting. And right after the sound of a mighty wind howled through the house, we read in verse 3, 
And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. So suddenly separate tongues of fire appeared to everyone in the house. And a different tongue of fire rested on top of each one of those Christians. And it wasn't one giant fire that came down, okay? There were dozens of separate flames that appeared to them and then rested on each individual Christian there. That's incredible. It's not clear if these were actual tongues of fire or if they just appeared like fire. But what is clear is that throughout redemptive history, God's presence is often associated with fire. Uh, In the burning bush with Moses, in the wilderness with the pillar of fire, in the fire of the tabernacle and the temple, God's presence was revealed to God's people with fire. And when John the Baptist was baptizing disciples at the Jordan River before Jesus' public ministry had began, remember John told his disciples, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So John was prophesying that after dying for our sins, after rising from the dead, after ascending to heaven, Jesus would send his Holy Spirit to his church to baptize them with God's Spirit, with the presence of holy fire. And it's probably significant that the fires were dozens of separate fires and not just one big fire. Because just as there had been holy fire in God's temple in Jerusalem, God now brought his holy fire out to his people and he put it on each one of them individually. So 1 Corinthians 6 says that right now, each and every person who trusts in Jesus is a temple of the living God. The Holy Spirit dwells inside every individual who trusts in Jesus. That's truth, and that's mysterious. And this might very well be the reason why the fire in this passage was divided and rested on each individual Christian. Let's keep going. Verse uh, verse 4 says, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So every disciple of Jesus in that house was filled with the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus had promised to do for them when he ate his last supper with the apostles. Remember he said in John 14, 16 to 17, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So there's one God, and he exists eternally in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. And this helper that Jesus is talking about here, this spirit of truth, is the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And here in verse 4, Jesus is sending God the Holy Spirit into each of these believing disciples, making them filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit's doing a couple of different things here, at least, that that I could see. First, he is for the first time in history entering individual Christians to stay inside them forever. Remember, before Pentecost, the Holy Spirit had worked in many incredible ways among God's people. He, I did this study a few weeks ago where I just, I looked up the word spirit and I said, 
how is this used in every instance in the Bible? In every verse. And I wrote out, okay, this, and when, are those, when is Spirit capitalized? Because that refers to Holy Spirit. How was the Holy Spirit active before Pentecost? And I wrote down every verb that the Holy Spirit does. I'm not going to read all those to you. But this is what it says in the Old Testament, that the Holy Spirit rested upon people. He spoke through people. He stirred the hearts of people. He rushed onto people. He dwelled among people. And he even filled several people. The Bible does say the Holy Spirit was in. He uses that word about six different times in the Old Testament. But it appears that that filling was temporary. But now that Jesus has died for our sins once and for all, now that he has risen from the dead in power and ascended into heaven, Jesus sends his Holy Spirit to interbelievers forever so that for the rest of our eternal existence, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Again, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20 says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So if you believe that Jesus is God, that he died for your sins, that he rose from the dead, if you're trusting in Jesus for eternal life, then right now the Holy Spirit is inside of you, and he's there to stay. Good news. Ephesians 1 says that the Holy Spirit in you seals you as God's adopted child and that the Holy Spirit is securing your salvation in Christ. So that's the first thing we see that the Holy Spirit's doing here in verse 4. He's inaugurating this permanent indwelling of all Christians. And at the same time, the Spirit was obviously doing more than that among the disciples because when the Holy Spirit saves a person and enters him or her, that person doesn't necessarily start speaking in tongues. And so here the Holy Spirit was doing a supernatural act in and through the disciples as he enabled them to speak in tongues, just as he would do later again several points in Acts. And at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit gave the disciples, it says, special utterances, and they began to speak in other tongues. F.F. <clears throat> Bruce notes uh, that in the Old Testament, when the Holy Spirit descended on someone, they would often prophesy. Sometimes prophesying means that the Holy Spirit announces through a human speaker what God is going to do in the future. It's called foretelling prophecy. And other times prophesying means that the Spirit announces through a human speaker a message that God has for the people right then and there. We call that foretelling prophecy. And that biblical pattern of the Holy Spirit coming down and then prophesying is, uh, it matches what we see happening here at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit descends upon the disciples, he enters them, and he enables them to speak a message from God through this supernatural gift called tongues. And the Bible talks about speaking in tongues in several places, but in this context, in this passage that we're looking at today, the tongues that the disciples are speaking are real, known, understandable languages. Here, tongues are not utterances that nobody can understand. And we'll see why this is the case here as we read verses 5 and 6, which say, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. 
So Luke reminds us that Pentecost, the feast of the wheat harvest, is taking place in Jerusalem. This is not coincidental. God knows exactly what he's doing. And so nearby to these tongue-speaking Christians were thousands of devout Jews from every nation under heaven. And when this crowd of Jews heard all the noise coming from this nearby house, they came over to them to see what was going on. And it says they were bewildered. They were baffled at the sight because each of these Jews from all over the world was hearing the disciples speak in each of their own native languages. Verses 7 to 8 say, And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? See, these Jews from all over the world weren't only astounded that this group of people were speaking their native tongue, their native language. They were also astounded that these people speaking were Galileans. Galilee was a region about 100 miles north of Jerusalem, is a region, it's up uh, 100 miles north of Jerusalem, and it was kind of considered the back country. Do you remember how Nathaniel responded when he found out that Jesus was from Nazareth in Galilee? Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The Galileans were not known for being academics or intellectuals. They were largely carpenters and fishermen, and they worked blue-collar jobs. And the Galileans were, were known around the country for speaking with a unique accent that was different for the way people spoke in other parts of the country. The Galileans were somewhat similar to the stereotypes that may come to mind when we think of people who live in the backwoods parts of America who talk in a funny accent. These were the Galileans. These were Jesus' disciples. And then all of a sudden, these unrefined, uneducated men are clearly speaking foreign languages from around the world that they've never been taught. You guys know Uncle Cy, maybe, some of you? Let's see, we got a picture of him. Tony Merida says it this way. This is a good analogy. Imagine Uncle Cy from Duck Dynasty standing up in front of a group of ambassadors from around the world, including China, and suddenly telling them the gospel in perfect Mandarin Chinese. That's what happened in this passage, except there were dozens of Uncle Sai's walking around Jerusalem and speaking lots of different languages perfectly. You can take Uncle Sai down, because that's going to be a distraction. <laughs> Thank you, okay. And the Jewish people, it says, are amazed at this, okay? They look around at, at, at their own crowd of this gathering of Jews from around the world, and they realize that the Christians are all speaking their languages. In verses 9 to 11, the Jews say, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Now, we got to make this more concrete. So I want to look at a map of the ancient world at that time and see where all these places were that the Jews had traveled from. Okay, we're going to start on the right. In the east, you see Parthia and Media and Elam and Mesopotamia, which were all parts of the Parthian Empire. And then in the middle of the map, Jews had come from Judea by Jerusalem, down there, and then up north from Cappadocia, 
trying to get out of the way, you guys. And Pontus, and Asia, and Phrygia, and Pamphylia. And then south of the Mediterranean Sea, Jews had come from Egypt, and Libya, and Cyrene. And all the way in the left, Jews had traveled to Jerusalem from Rome in Italy. And in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, Jews came from Crete, that island there. And just east of Judea and Jerusalem, Jews had come from Arabia. And the Christians were miraculously speaking in the native tongue of all of these Jewish travelers. And according to verse 11, the Christians had a message. They were declaring the mighty works of God. The Jews were hearing the Christians declare the mighty works of God. The Bible doesn't give us much more specificity about what they were actually saying, but we could safely assume that God was empowering these Christians to declare any and all of his mighty works that he had done from the time he created the world until the time of Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension into heaven. And as this crowd of disciples was speaking to the Jews in the tongues of their native languages, verses 12 to 13 say, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. So some of the bystanders watching this happen said, ah, oh, they're all drunk. Now this, might have been, this must have been their initial reaction, or possibly these unbelievers kept believing this because they were blind to what God was powerfully doing right in front of them. But one thing the disciples weren't was drunk. And Peter would soon tell them that. He would tell the crowd, you guys, it's nine in the morning, we're not drunk. You know, if you were going to try to debunk what was happening to all those Christians, then drunkenness is a pretty terrible explanation. Because drunkenness can have a lot of different effects on people, but eloquence of speech is not one of those effects. And speaking in languages you've never been taught is not a side effect of drunkenness. In response to the question asked in verse 12, what does this mean? Okay, that's what we want to rest on today. We, we, we must assume, we must believe the disciples were not drunk. That's not what's going on. But in the remainder of our time here, I do want to draw out four applications of what Pentecost did mean and what it means for you and me, okay? First, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost means that God always keeps his promises. Jesus did exactly what he promised to do for the disciples, even though he was no longer with them in the flesh. He sent the Holy Spirit to them with power. And the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost was also the fulfillment of many ancient prophecies in the Old Testament, like Joel 2, 28 to 29, which says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit. So God always keeps his promises. He always does what he says he will do. He always finishes what he starts, and he has a perfect track record of this. And we believe that Jesus is going to come back to earth unannounced someday, just like he sent the Holy Spirit to the disciples unannounced. It happened, you know, they knew it was coming, but it just happened in God's timing. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. Talking about Jesus. 
That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So all of the promises of God are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So if you belong to Jesus Christ through faith, then all of God's promises belong to you. Some of his promises have yet to be filled in time and space, but you can be sure that every single one of his promises in Scripture will come to pass. So when you read the Bible, whether you're reading Genesis or Psalms or Acts or the Epistles or Revelation, you can trust your life with every one of the promises that you read in there. Because those are the words of God. The Bible is the word of God breathed out by the Holy Spirit. And he always keeps his promises and he always applies his promises of blessing, especially to those who belong to him through faith. It's his family. He loves us with a special love. Second, the coming, of, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost means that the good news of God's salvation is for people from all nations of the earth. All nations of the earth. There is no biblical grounds or place in the hearts of Jesus' followers or in Jesus' church for racism, sexism, classism, elitism, or nationalism. Paul says in Galatians 3, 27 to 29, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So listen closely here. Don't ever think that you're better than others or worse than others because of where you were born or where you live or who your parents are or were or where you work or where you go to school or how much money you have or how much money you don't have or what your hobbies are or how you talk or how your body is shaped. God and his gospel do not allow for that kind of discrimination. We who trust in Christ Jesus are all one in Christ Jesus. So may the Holy Spirit convict us when we fall into sinful patterns and sinfully discriminate against other people or between people. And may we see that by the power of the Holy Spirit and confess that and turn away from it and seek to see all people as God's image bearers and all Christians as our brothers and sisters in Christ. And because the good news of God's salvation is for people of all tribes and all languages, then we who have already received the gospel in our native tongues, we must be diligent to get the gospel into the hands of all people in their native tongues. And this is the main reason why our church supports missionaries and why we individually support missionaries, maybe probably other missionaries than the church supports but we have, you know, missionaries in Chad and Swaziland and the Philippines and Brazil because those missionaries are taking the gospel to hard places in the native tongues of the people who live there. And we need to keep praying for them. We need to keep praying for missionaries, our missionaries that we know and love because God willing, the Holy Spirit will use his gospel message to change hearts and to make people born again through faith in Jesus and God will be worshiped and glorified by all nations, Right? He w that will happen. And we are the means through which that happens with the Spirit indwelling us 
and empowering his gospel work through us. Third, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost means that our relationship with God is much more personal and intimate now. Even though God has always been omnipresent, before Pentecost, his followers had to come to one central location, like the temple, to worship him and to physically get close to him. But now that God's Spirit has entered the bodies of all Christians, we can worship him wherever we are as individuals and as a church. And Jesus in heaven is our perfect high priest. He's our heavenly advocate. And so we don't need to go to a temple anymore to have a priest be our spiritual mediator between us and God. The fact that God's spirit is in us individually means that we can fellowship with him in a special way now wherever we are as we read his word, as we pray to him, as we sing songs to him, as we fellowship with the Holy Spirit in us as individuals. It does not mean, however, that we should no longer meet together as Christians regularly to worship God as a church family. On the contrary, the book of Hebrews reminds us, don't get out of the habit of coming to church worship services. Don't get out of the habit of being in fellowship with other Christians. And it also means that there is nothing specifically supernatural about the building that we're in. It's a special place. We have a lot of great memories here. We have experiences of God here. We love being here. But the bricks are not supernatural. Maybe you didn't use brick. I don't know, Mike. You used steel. But what it means is that right now in 2017, our bodies are the temples of God that house the Holy Spirit. And the building, wherever we happen to meet in, is a building. We can gather as a church here or at church camp or in our homes or wherever we decide to gather to worship the Lord and to fellowship together. And fourth, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost means we can ask the Spirit to work powerfully in and through us and in and through our church. Obviously, the Holy Spirit can work through us in unusual ways, like we see in today's passage, but we also really need Jesus' help and the power of the Holy Spirit to live everyday life for the glory of God. We need the Holy Spirit to guide our hearts and to guard our mouths and to fill our acts of love with supernatural power. We need the Holy Spirit to do mighty things through our prayers in Jesus' name. Rick Doty is a living example of the power of prayer. We need the Holy Spirit to free people from the slavery of their sin in our church body, in our neighborhood. We need the Holy Spirit to free people from sickness if it's in accordance with his will. We gotta ask him for that and pray for that. Say, God, we, we want this, but we, we submit it to you. We know you're all wise, but we believe our prayers are powerful and effective and we're asking this according to your will. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to give faith in Jesus to those who don't believe and to strengthen our faith for those of us who do believe. We need the Holy Spirit to help us read our Bible and to show us the great things in God's word. We need help reading the Bible. We can't do this on our own. We need the Holy Spirit. It's called to illuminate it for us, to bring light to us. Show us, Holy Spirit, what this means and what it means for me and our church. 
We need the Holy Spirit to, to guide our steps as we submit our lives to him, as we ask him, God, show me the way you want me to go. Holy Spirit, show me. I want to walk in step with you in the way I live and, and in the places you want me to go for your glory. We need the Holy Spirit to work out the, his fruit in our lives. Because without him, we do not have the kind of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control that glorifies Jesus. We need the Spirit. And so, we, we need to pray. And we need to stay in prayer as individuals and as a church and as community groups. I was so encouraged to hear one of the community groups this week just spent the whole time praying. And, and uh, community group leaders, I'm, I plan on emailing you out some guides on what to pray for if you're interested in doing that. Let me close with these words from R.C. Sproul. The day of Pentecost was that moment in redemptive history when God unlocked the power of the Holy Spirit and gave it to his church, not just for those who were gathered there, but to the church of every age and to every Christian throughout time. Praise God. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, thank you for this good news that you're working in us and through us and around us. Father, we thank you for the great love that you have for us, that you sent your only son Jesus to die for our sins and to rise again so that we might be reconciled to you, so that we can live in you and so that we can have the Holy Spirit in us. It's all of grace. It's all of your grace. It's not because of us. Thank you, God. Please show us how we can worship you in response to that, how we can obey you how we can live lives of obedience to you as we love you with all our hearts and minds and souls and strength, as we seek to love our neighbors as ourselves, as we seek to be people and church on mission who want to bring you glory through our worship and through our community of fellowship and through our service of this church and our community and through multiplying disciples. None of this has purpose if you're not in it, Jesus. So please empower us, encourage us. And we thank you, God, for this good news that we don't have to sweat and sweat and sweat and worry and worry and worry. Is the Holy Spirit in me. You made it simple. Do we trust you, Jesus? Do we believe that you are the living God who came, who died, who rose again, and who lives in glory right now? And if so, you are in us, you are with us. You will never leave us or forsake us. We praise you for that and we thank you for the song that we have to sing. And we pray for our neighbors who do not have that song to sing, that you would work in their hearts and use us in the gospel and the Holy Spirit in our prayers, that they might be changed so that they can sing with us, Jesus. We love you and we pray this in your name, amen.